Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Hi, welcome to today's episode of In the Landscape with your resident landscape design expert, Charles Sadler, and Kate Sadler, who is not a design expert, but I'm here to learn (laughs) along with the rest of our listeners. So I am looking forward to today's topic very much because today we are going to go over design basics, kind of the process of landscape design that you approach when you come across a new garden, a new landscape, and you're meeting with a client and taking them through how you're going to transform this space into something cool. And so why don't you tell us how does that process begin? Okay, sure. There's often some type of uh, interaction, a, a phone call or request, a meeting. I try to get lots of information in advance. So I, I do my homework before we first meet, whether it's an institution, a residence, commercial, whatever type of a property it is. Some of that research would be a site survey. So that's really learning where's the sun coming from, which way is north. If there's wind, is it exposed? Is it in a low spot? Even before we meet, really thinking of, you know, landscape designers create people places, places that people like to be. And so a successful design is going to be a comfortable place for people to be. So you have sun, you have shade, you have places to sit. There's beautiful things to see. There might be, might be obscuring things that you don't want to see. So before you get to a property, and if any of our listeners are planning to work with a landscape design professional, what are some things we ask? or from them in order to even get started on the research? Oh, good question. And so this would be, even if you weren't hiring a professional, everything we're talking about, if you're doing it yourself, they would apply. It's a survey of the property, which is the boundaries of whatever you're working with. And so that might, for an artist, that'd be the canvas. This is what do I have to work with? Can you tell us a little bit? There's some funny property surveys that we've come across in our work that are from really old properties. Can you describe that a little bit? In North America, in the United States, surveys before a certain date, I don't know, I mean, I'm going to guess it's 1800s, are, it's a written description. It's not a visual. It's, so that's like one abnormality. And so it would say the Josiah Smith property begins at the large boulder by the creek by Olson's Pass or by Johnson Road, and it extends all the way to the, to the Warwick Barn. And so we've run across surveys where it's a written description. And there's stone walls. There can be elements in the landscape that may be hundreds of years old. So let's say you have one of those, but you'd like to get something more current. Is there a way to get an updated property survey in this day and age? Uh, certainly. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, always when you're going to install, let's say, privacy screening or a fence. You want to know where your property begins and ends. And even though you might be sure, like we're called into situations where people were wrong and they, they have cut down trees. They thought it was their tree. It was really their neighbor's tree. So having a surveyor visit and resurvey it, and they put stakes or there could be a stone marker, some type of a, of a relatively permanent marker, which would indicate the boundaries of your property. So it may seem like a really simple step, but it's actually kind of fascinating how much of a document of history the survey can be or how much a new survey can benefit your property. So does something that is worth considering if you go through your old home 
documents and see see what you have at your disposal. So you would ask for a survey. Is there anything else you would try to get from prospective client or you would recommend that home designers come up with for themselves to give themselves a direction? Looking at pictures of gardens, landscapes, patios, plants, furniture, outdoor furniture, elements that, that are appealing to you. And, and might I suggest King Garden Inc. on our <laughs> Instagram page. <laughs> So we have some images of great gardens that we visited. And it's also helpful to look at who follows whom. So mm-hmm. a lot of designers will follow other designers with a similar aesthetic. And you can kind of go down a rabbit hole of exciting design prospects. And Pinterest, I suppose, might be another resource that our listeners are familiar with that you can use to start to gather image ideas. So you're saying create kind of like an image, image library. Board or like an idea board. Awesome. Which could be a physical board. In a design office, you'd have that. It'd be a physical board that you'd tack up images to. Or it could be a, a digital one. So find out what you like. You can do a little research. Say you're, you're in Arizona, and, but you love rhododendron and hydrangea. That's what you grew up with in, in another part of the country or the world. So doing research, you might, I mean, I had people that, let's say in the Ithaca area, it was really too cold to grow rhododendron where they particularly were. I think it was even further, maybe it was near Utica. And there was like hard news to find out like rhododendron are, <laughs> they had tried to grow them, they had died. And I said, that's sort of what you're working with. It's very cold. There's often substitutes though. If there's an aesthetic, you take a trip to the south of France and you fall in love with the fields of lavender. And so where you're living, maybe cold and wet winters, which lavender would abhor, it might not survive, but there would be a substitute type of a, of a mint that would have a similar aesthetic, let's say, for instance. So getting the aesthetic that you like, and then the details can be worked at later. The specific types of plants, or if there's an aesthetic, maybe it's a more casual California-style garden, or maybe it's a very formal French-style garden with hedges and topiary. You mentioned something, just to refer back to one of our first episodes, the right tree. So we're talking about the right plant in the right place. And we need to consider what plants are going to look like when they're fully grown. How -hmm. would we get a sense of that? A great tool, which I've done over many years myself, is visiting botanic gardens, arboretums, college campuses, even even cemeteries you don't think of as a beautiful place, or you might think of it in a morbid way, but cemeteries have Often wonderful, very old trees. And there's before there were public parks like Central Park, the cemetery was a place where you would go and enjoy a park-like setting. So any place that has old, mature trees and shrubs is a great place to learn of what that, let's say, a Norway spruce is used often for screening. It grows quickly. It's relatively inexpensive. And then seeing that same tree is going to become as big as a Rockefeller Christmas tree. That's like often what they use. <laughs> like it might become a 90-foot tree, and that might not be the right plant. Even within 10 years, it might be too big for the spot. That's great. So what are some of the next steps? You've done your research. You've used tools like the survey. I know you happen to use things like Google Earth even. You can, you can get some measurements. Oh, from- right. There's great tools, Google Earth, and more and more other uh, widely available software. Measuring the site, getting a sense of things are often not what they appear. You think, oh, this is, I'm sure this is this big. And you measure it and you're like, well, that's actually, that back shed is actually 90 feet from the house. That's bigger than I thought. So if you were to plant 
let's say a row of evergreen shrubs, 90 feet, that's a lot of shrubs. <laughs> I run into that where people, they say, well, what, what would that cost? What's a guideline? I say, well, that's going to be so many of this at this price. It's good to do the research and to have, just like you're, if you were sitting down to do a drawing, that process, you'd get all your tools, you'd have the paper, you'd have the subject matter. To be efficient and effective is being prepared. What are some next steps? Once you've done your preliminary research, what does the more in-depth design assessment look like? It would be similar to lots of fields of bookkeeping, where the first step would be like a site inventory. And so there's a meeting with the client, whether it's business owner or the, or the owner of the resident. So it's meeting with them, finding out like a client brief, what are they, why do they call you and what are their goals? If it's a couple, finding getting both sides is very important. It's a public space and there's a public meeting to find out what's important. And do you think an inventory is something anyone should physically write down, for example, if they're planning to try to do an organized design themselves for their own garden? Uh, yes, I would encourage that. And what we often use is making a copy of the survey. And that way you have something which you can physically draw right on. Or you could do it in a digital way. You could have a scan that survey and just be very direct. In a childlike way, say, I want to screen my neighbor's garage and just draw a line like where that would occur. And so the design process is staying very general and you gradually get more specific. It's very tempting to go right to the finished result. You could overlook something important. I would say for those who are concerned about, especially if you're doing the work yourself, certainly if you're financing it yourself. It can feel like a lot at once. And so having the plan helps you to map out what the priorities are, for ex example. Mm -hmm. So if that garage is just an eyesore and it, and it has to be screened, maybe that takes the place of replacing a patio or something. But you know that the patio will be a part of a stage later on that you can budget for, you can plan your time for. And without that plan, even as simple as writing on the survey, and kind of having it mapped out, it can feel overwhelming to even know where to get started. Would you agree? Right. Like with some of those first client meetings, people are often overwhelmed. Like we need a new roof. The driveway needs to be repaved. We want an outdoor space. The kids have nowhere to play. The backyard's muddy because it's too shady. So they have this, all these obstacles where if in a systematic way, just recording, what are your goals? We want to have a view of the, of the nearby hillside which is it's blocked now with an old tree or we need one more parking spot because there's a teenager that drives now and they're parking on the grass. It can be very practical. And so done with intent, there can be cost savings too. And then it can be done right the first time and planned. And doing it without intent, in some cases we get involved after maybe someone that was less skilled attempted to find a solution or people did it themselves. And so doing it with design intent and with lots of experience <laughs> And avoid that. Even the, the library, the internet can give you, give you that experience of others. We're talking about some goals like screening. I mentioned a patio. You talked about the driveway for the teenager. So I've heard you talk about, you also mentioned earlier in this podcast that the design is meant for the person. It's got to be a people space. What does that look like when you're doing the design process? Do you physically stand in the spaces that people would be mm -hmm. as you're doing your... I like to be inside, whether it's a commercial building, a residential building. 
remember there was a, a project where the housekeeper let me in. I wanted to see the views from all the homes. And the homeowner came home and they were like, why were you in our, in our kitchen? They said, because you spend more time at your kitchen sink than you do in the garden. <laughs> so seeing it's very important to go to the exact site, whether it's getting ready for work, looking out the master bedroom window, or maybe it's, a, it's an office, there's a conference room that looks out on a parking lot. Maybe there could be something more beautiful within that view. Or it's, it's human nature. People often go to the area they think where the solution should occur, and it might not be the case. Like with screaming, you can imagine if you hold your hand close to your face, it's very big. As you push your hand, as far as you can reach, it's very small. So if you were screening or you wanted something interesting, you want a hawthorn tree with the red berries in the winter, if that's close to your view, it's going to appear very large. And so maybe you only need one of those to do, where if it's distance, you might need a whole forest of those to have the same effect. Great. So what are some other steps in this process? Where, where would we be now? We're starting to think about how we're using the space. We're starting to think about what plants might go there. We're trying to make a systematic plan. What comes next? Well, let's see the inventory, the analysis of what do we have to work with? What are the assets, liabilities, pros and cons? And then how are the homeowners, the individuals going to use the space? And so I ask questions like, if it's a residence and there's a patio, what does a typical uh, weekend look like where you're using this? Is it six of you, two of you? Some people like to entertain. They'll have their office over for work. Maybe they're the, a company owner. And they'll say, once a year, we have 50 to 100 people over. And so they have a big tent set up. So really finding out the range of uses. Maybe the home or the residence is a seasonal home, or it's an area of the property that's seasonal, like a swimming pool. It's only used in the summer during warm months. And so plants like roses and hydrangeas and vitex and crepe myrtle, you know, there's all kinds of beautiful, long-blooming summer plants, and they might be perfect for that. Where if it's close to the house and you see it all year, maybe it's the front of the house or the front of an office or a condominium, you want to have lots of evergreens. So even in the winter, it's not bleak. What about transplanting? How do you determine whether something should be moved to a different spot? Is that a part of this inventory process or does this come later? That could be part of the, of the assets and liabilities. Like for instance, there are some large shrubs that would transplant maybe a large rhododendron or a skip laurel or a viburnum or boxwood that could transplant with a skilled horticulturalist. You could successfully transplant very large plants and that might make the whole space. And then there might be other plants, let's say there are some holly that can be hard to transplant, it's hard to get a good root ball, or juniper, it can be hard to successfully move them. Or maybe it's a, a weeping cherry tree. You see a lot of those. <laughs> and so the value of the plant, people often think, oh, this is so valuable. It's so special to us. But the labor and the expertise to move it might be much greater than the value of it. It might cost you three times as much to move it as it would be to buy another one. I know in this early stage of the design, it's a good time also to evaluate, perhaps to get somebody in for an estimate or to evaluate yourself, if you have the knowledge, what needs to be cleaned up or pruned or removed. It's a good time to take a look at trees, maybe invite someone in to do a tree risk assessment, which we may talk about in a later episode, and just make sure that as you're focusing on the garden at this time, you're kind of tidying 
what needs right. attention. Right. Those are great points. In the design process, often the initial steps might be subtractive, might be removing things that don't work. It's an office building and they had a stone walkway that's crumbling. It gets salt in the winter and it's might have looked good when I was new. And in that first stage is often, is there anything dangerous? Are things that are a trip hazard? Are there trees that are hazardous? Are there elements that maybe are high maintenance that are expensive or difficult to maintain? It could just be removed and simplified. And are living with a simpler landscape, maybe for a period of months, while this design process is occurring, can be a good idea. Having a certified arborist is, let's say if there's, you know, there's trees, of course, if there's elements such as walls or drainage issues, having an engineer is often, particularly if there's walls, that they could be dangerous for peace of mind. Great. All right. Where are we in our process now? Let's see. So we've, we have some pictures of things we're interested in. We have feedback. And the other elements we often talk about are, is there an investment? Is there a budget in mind? Is there a short-term, long-term? How long are the residents or the business owners planning to stay there? If it's going to be, oh, at least 10, 20 years, then that's a different investment than if it's beautifying something for a shorter-term gain of a few years. Because we know from visiting the nursery that there is a huge difference in price for the more mature plants because they've had more time to develop. So if you need a lot of impact right away, let's say you're getting the home ready to sell it and you want things to look mature, like they've been there for a while, it is going to be a different price point than if you can wait two, three years for them to fill in and develop over time. Right. Good point. And so getting all these facets. And so sometimes in the Northeast and like in the greater New York City area, it's rocky and, and sometimes there's steep slopes. And a common request is I want a flat, whether it's a commercial or residential area, I want a flat area for walking or gathering or playing sports with children. So getting an estimate for a retaining wall to level is sometimes would, would not require design. And that would just give a ballpark of, and it's often more expensive than people expect. And so that can, some numbers up front where the, the design is driven by on what would be a reasonable budget for the homeowner, the business owner. And then also, how is it going to be maintained? Are very, those are good upfront questions, not to find out you have this beautiful design, this swimming pool, all these ex- extravagant features, and the swimming pool is going to be worth more than the house. It's not, not a reasonable approach. Or it's a beautiful design. It's, but it's higher maintenance. And in some parts of the country, the world, there's not skilled people to maintain it. So the designer might have come from somewhere else, and, but there's not a local person that can really care for it. And so are there, there are designs that are like low maintenance and folks just kind of don't have to do much. They just sit there and look pretty. Is that right? I mean, no? like uh, using native plants, that's usually plants that live there. That's often tends to be lower maintenance. Uh, there are drought-tolerant plants with more extreme weather. And so plants that could handle, once they're established, could handle periods if, where there's not enough water. Or as temperatures seem to be rising, having plants that can handle more extreme temperatures, uh, more water in shorter intervals, that's what, what the research is showing. That in a given area, it might be about the same rainfall, but it's occurring in shorter periods. So instead of four storms, it's, it's one storm that's inundating an area. So you mentioned 
the drive, the potential to put in a, a part of partial driveway retaining wall. We're starting to enter into territory where having, you mentioned an engineer, at a minimum, in addition to scoping out the budget or maybe thinking of having a bringing on a professional for these things, it's important to figure out what the building codes are for your region. Is that correct? Working with a local professional, or in some cases, we, we might be brought in as a local consultant or a consultant in the United States and the designer or the other person might be from outside of the area, a person that's versed in the local building codes, like with property, let's say it's desirable to put a fence in often for keep the dog contained or the children safe from traffic. And so in many populated areas, which is where most listeners are, would be, you know, the building codes could vary where there might be no fence allowed in the front yard, but maybe you could have a, a green fence. You could have a, like a hedge. Building departments tend to have those codes online. Not every, might be uh, some locations, like a rural location that might not, but just visiting the building department and saying, we're thinking of doing this. We want to expand our driveway. So a buzzword would be impervious surfaces. And so for a given property, there's often a percentage, whether it's 23%, some percentage of the property, and there'd be a limit. So your roof would be impervious when it rains, that water's not going into the ground. Some elements would not count that. So that's done for stormwater with flooding. If everything was paved, there'd be more flooding. And so that, that impacts everybody. And so finding out, which could even be done before you bought a house or a commercial property, if there's objections that you, that you identify in the pros and cons, I've been involved in that before where people called and said, we really want to build a retaining wall or put up a fence or change the driveway. And it's in, you can generally, with the help of some professionals or some research, you could find that out pretty quickly. And so it's just a, a good idea to get that information before you attempt to install anything yourself, just so you're not uh, surprised by the building inspector after the fact. And right. Because although it's not in the home or on the home, it's, it's around the home that maybe planting a tree wouldn't be covered by the, these departments, these municipal departments, but, you know, altering a driveway or, or putting up a wall certainly would be. So where are we now in our design process? Have you started to we have the survey, it's got a little sketch on it, but you end up giving clients a beautifully rendered graphic design of a plan that you've put together. Can anyone sketch out a plan and, and how would they go about that and figure out what goes where? Well, I guess with the advent of how-to videos and great books and tutorials, even without training, you can, you can find solutions. Like uh, this old house, you know, tends, continually puts out great, content. There's lots of great content out there. So identifying the priorities, the budget, the time frame that doesn't mean want to move forward right away. And then you've gotten some feedback, whether it's your own research or from professionals. And then so the design process is putting pen to paper in some form. Remember I had professors, landscape architecture professors that said, you don't have to be Michelangelo. You know, just communicate the information on paper or on a software. There's even great ones I don't use it myself, but some designers love to, to work on the iPad where you can sketch right in the field. I like old-fashioned pencil and paper. I've seen you do something as simple as put almost like tracing paper over a survey to start to sketch out where elements of the design are going to go. And of course, it gets then translated, as I said, into, into a you know, computer-rendered graphic with elevations and whatnot. But that simple, you have the survey 
it's got everything laid out and you can kind of be just sort of mapping over it with, with the uh, tracing paper and, right. a, and a few colored pencils to give yourself a sense of where things need to go. Right. It can be very simple at a local art supply store. I still, the tracing paper is a great tool. It's that phenomenon when you work, let's say, in a computer graphics and a CAD program or something, and you show that to the client, the phenomenon is that it looks like it's a finished, fixed design. I've gotten feedback and I remember in school we learned that. So something that's with a pencil and paper, it looks, it doesn't feel fixed. It's malleable. It's changeable, which is very important, just like I said earlier, to stay open, not to have a fixed idea of what the end result is going to be. From a tracing paper, that might be as refined as you need to get. And even a local nursery or supplier, or that could be given to a landscape design professional or another professional. And that could be a, a starting place where I want to screen. You're in Oregon. We talked about Oregon in a previous episode. And so going to a local nursery with your sketch, you'd say, I've got 25 feet and I want an evergreen screening. What would work? And a good nursery, a good salesperson or a design professional or a certified arborist could say, in this climate, this would work. They'd ask you, do you have deer? Are there other, uh, is there road salt? Is, the, is it a windy site? You know, factors that could have influenced the plan. Well, the installation. So once you have a plan, whether it's your own or it's uh, getting an estimate for the work and the time frame, like how I like to ask up front, how is it going to be maintained? When it gets to the time where you're ready to plant or construct, it's important. Some of the questions would be, how is it going to be watered? If you're building, let's say, a gazebo, a trellis, uh, some type of a structure, uh, fencing, there's synthetic, there's vinyl and plastic and metal and wood. Those all have different costs and they last different amounts of time. They have different aesthetics that auto-inform the design. Or say, there's like a principle in Japanese gardens and design that the material ought to improve in, in appearance over time. So that, that stone wall in 10 years looks even better. There's lichen and there's moss on it. And the wood that's selected for that gazebo, that ought to improve with age, whether it's painted or it's, it's a type of a wood that can handle the weather. As opposed to in 10 years, you have to tear it down and it's, it's degraded so much that it's, it's no longer an asset. As something that I've seen you use successfully, and I suppose you could do this if you're having, you know, if you purchase plants at a nursery and then we're going to assist with the installation or something, and you've, you've got an idea of where things should go, something you use in your practice a lot, are, it's as simple as that orange spray can that oh, right. is, Like you marking know, paint could be contractors marking paint. Some folks use, if you want an organic option, you could use lime or another material or sand. Or a garden hose marking out, I've done that before with clients, marking out a patio where with the marking paint, marking right on the grass, this is what 16 by 20 feet looks like. This is what we're, we're proposing. Let's take that furniture that's on, at another part of the patio or another part of the house, put furniture right here in this space. How does that feel? And people often are surprised, like, well, it doesn't feel, it feels like about the right size. It seems huge with no furniture. And you put furniture in there. And I've also seen you use stakes and labels. I mean, just uh, something to get it in the ground. And then, for example, if you're planning to put a plant that you've used in this region a lot because of the Northeast United States fall color, that sugar maple. Oh, right. So let's say you want that 
viewable from your kitchen window. And that you can get the steak there so that you can then sort of evaluate for sure whether you've gotten it in the right spot. And you're not mm-hmm. just you're not just sort of using the scale drawing that you've put together and then assuming it's right. You can you can actually confirm that it's right because once you plant it, you don't want to be then uprooting things and moving them around again. Right. We get calls like that sometimes where it was not maybe planted in the correct place originally, wasn't maybe thought through that well. This design good design it is simple if you skip the step it can be a lot more it can be you can make it very complicated <laughs> yeah and and i guess the big drawback is then you have you know the plants the living the living organisms that are kind of caught in the in the crossfire so to speak they will suffer if as we've alluded to before they're not they're not actually put in the right place and so the um, stakes i find are a very good tool where i tend to refer to the drawing as a concept plan that it's that one landscape architect that I admire from the past, A.E. By, his office was in Greenwich, Connecticut. And he worked all over, you know, beautiful, used mostly native plants, very modern in a way. He had lots of earth sculpting, and he would call his plants, I think, a schematic, where it's, it's a suggestion of what's going to occur there. Like, he would use white pines, but a lot of the work was really done in the field. There are stories of him with a bulldozer. There was a site, maybe it was in Kent, he'd be out there in his... Hawaiian shirt, you know, as the sun's coming up, you'd be looking at the shadows. So it's, and I tend to aspire to that, you know, that it's the design should be right for that site. That it, and what's on the paper is a great tool to organize your thoughts. When I have to make changes at the last minute or the plants that are specified, the day that the uh, contractor picks them up at the nursery, maybe they're not looking so great. They've been sitting there for two months. But maybe there's a plant next to the rhododendron aren't looking great, but the skip laurels are nice and glossy. And having that type of discretion and flexibility, I find, is very important. That for, if the goal is for a beautiful garden that works, that, again, like staying open and not having a fixed idea. Well, we all want beautiful gardens that work. I think that's a great goal. So we love to have episodes that focus on a specific species of plant and how to take care of it. And I think it's great that Today, we opened the aperture a little bit and talked about the design process so that our enthusiasts and other professionals out there can be thinking critically about process since it makes such a big difference in the outcome in terms of organization and usability, as you mentioned, success of the plant life and uh, satisfaction with what your result is. So we welcome feedback. You can always email us at connect at kinggardeninc.com. And we'll include lots of information as usual in our show notes, any Latin names that we can come up with for some of the species that we talked about. You're certainly encouraged to follow us on Instagram. We welcome comments, questions, and even corrections if we've misspoken. And uh, any last thoughts for us today? When selecting a professional to work with, whether it's someone, an arborist to trim the trees or a designer to work with, and not to be shy, ask them questions. And see, is this a person that that you want to, that you're going to spend time with. Is this a good, you imagine having an, an ongoing relationship with them. That's important. And if it doesn't feel quite right, perfectly acceptable to say, we're going to think about it, that there's plenty of great professionals out there. Find someone that's a good fit. And then even in that initial meeting and saying, do you have someone that you can recommend that can help us care for this? Maybe it's just once a year that an arborist comes, make sure that the trees are safe or that hedge is being maintained as the, the design intent was initially. So without that type of oversight, things can sort of shift. And so over time, that 
all that care that went into the design can get lost. Great. Well, thank you so much for this conversation and for joining us today as we talk about the design process from the beginning. And we look forward to future episodes in the landscape. And we look forward to being with you all again in the future. 